in this series that we've been doing here in Sunday School on how to read and study the Bible, what theologians call hermeneutics. Once again, this series is based on a lot of the information that comes from this book, aside from the Bible, but this book, Living by the Book, The Art and Science of Reading the Bible by Howard and Bill Hendricks. Because the Bible is inspired, because it is perfect, because it is purposeful in every little detail, we want to read it and we want to study it with a method that reflects those qualities. And that's what we've been learning about. By doing so, we want to see more of God's face. We want the Bible and its truths to take hold of us. And we want to be changed. So uh, we want to be changed by those truths so we could become more like the image of Christ. Now, today, I do want to take some time to hear about some of your own Bible reading. I hope you are reading the Bible daily and are using the method that we've been talking about. I'd love to hear what you are coming to see, what you're noticing, what you're coming to understand, what you're even putting into practice from the Bible. So while you're thinking of a few things maybe to share or one thing, let's review a little bit. <clears throat> what is our method for reading the Bible? Someone. Three steps. Very good. Observe, interpret, and apply. And what questions are we asking with those three steps? With the first, we ask, what do I see? Very good. What do I actually see in the text? With the second, what do we ask when we, in the interpret step? First, what do I see? Then, I hear murmurs. No? Well, who would be one of the questions we ask when we're looking for what do I see? What does it mean? Yes. First we ask, what do I see? Then we ask, what does it mean? And then third, in the apply step, what do we ask? Craig? Essentially, yes. How does it affect my life? How does it work out itself in my life? How does it work in my life and in others? Very good. That's our method. Observe, interpret, apply. We always want to come to a biblical passage with those steps in mind. Now, each one of these steps is critical. If we try and study the Bible without one of these steps, we may actually... Um, This may actually hurt us by leading us into error or by not applying it, we might be just storing up condemnation against ourselves for knowing the will of God and yet not doing it. Now, we've been looking more closely at the beginning of this series at the first step, observation. And we're looking to improve ourselves in being able to notice, being able to see different things in the Bible. Now, we've learned five kinds of observations that we can make on a passage of Scripture. What's one? People, very good. We want to kind of understand the people. What do they say? What do they do? What's said about them? We want to understand what makes these people tick so that we can figure out what to imitate and what not to. What else? Places, very good. Pay attention to locations. Where is a place? What's it like? How far is it from other places? Very good. That's two. More. Yes, we pay attention to the times. When does something happen? How does it fit in the sequence of other events? How much time has gone by between different events? Very good. So we have people, places, and time. And we looked at two last week. What were those? Terms. Yes, terms. And you gave the other one, grammar. We're looking at what words do we not know? Uh, What words have a meaning that's unique in the context or in, in a specific section? What are some of the terms from the original language, from the Hebrew and Greek? And then we go into the grammar. What are the different parts of the speech that we can pick out as being significant or the parts of a sentence, like the verbs? Is the tense significant? Is it future tense, past tense? 
What about the voice? Is it passive? Is it active? Is it middle? Is, are there transition words like but? Because that's going to tell me something about the author's flow of ideas, or for, or therefore. All these different things. We're looking for people, places, times, terms, grammar. Those are all excellent things that we want to be taking time to observe when we read. But now, let's hear a little bit from your own study. What are some of the things that you've observed in the Bible recently that stuck out to you but that you never saw before? You don't necessarily have to give your interpretation or application, but you can if you wish. I'll just give you one to start. I've been reading through the book of 1 Timothy. I, I mentioned last week I was working through the book of Titus, and I started reading the book of 1 Timothy because they're kind of similar. Uh, Paul is writing to a young leader in the church, and I noticed something similar that he says in both. He has a, a warning against unprofitable discussions. In 1 Timothy 1, 3-4, Paul writes, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on in Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than the furthering of the administration of God, which is by faith. This is kind of similar to what Paul says in Titus, Titus chapter 3, verse 9, Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So it's interesting that this challenge appears in both for both young leaders, and it makes me wonder for our Christians today, for our church today, what are the kind of foolish or pseudo-spiritual discussions that we get into as Christians that actually turn out to be unprofitable? Anyways, that's something I noticed. What's something that you've noticed? Yeah, Craig. That's definitely true. Is there a specific passage that where that has been more evident to you? On which one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really good. When we take time to actually just notice the angels in the Bible, it's actually, it, it's, uh, what's the word? It's, some, it's surprising. You don't expect what you actually find. Yeah, that's good. Something else? Something else that you've noticed in your own Bible reading? Yeah, Amy. Yeah, that's a really good observation, Amy. Seeing election and other doctrines that seem so clear in the New Testament are actually pretty clear in the Old Testament as well. That's a really good observation. What's something else? Uh, Judy.
Mm. Yeah, that's a good observation. Looking at the sequence, a time observation there. They had the Passover, which they hadn't had for a long time. That's probably under Josiah or Hezekiah. I can't remember um, exactly. But, and then, yeah, they go out and tear down the idols. That's a good observation. Yeah, one more. Yeah, um, especially uh, I like the way you po- picked out those details that it tells you all the land creatures that were, were dying there, but it doesn't tell you about the sea creatures dying in the flood in Genesis. Yeah, that's a good observation. And we could talk for a really long time about the different things that you can notice in the Bible or that you've been seeing in your study. I hope you are doing that. I hope that you are di- even discussing them with one another, with your family, with, uh, with a friend, with somebody here at the church. Not just what you notice, but as you work together to uh, discuss the interpretation of a passage or an application, I think we all sharpen one another that way. So I hope that you will continue to do that. Thank you for all of you who shared. As, uh, as Craig mentioned, we never exhaust what the Bible teaches. Even what we've learned before, as we continue to read, it becomes deeper and richer and sharper. So far, we've looked at observation types dealing with the substance of the text, people, places, and time. And we've also looked at some observation types dealing with the medium of the text itself, like terms and grammar. Today, I just want to talk about one observation type that's somewhat related to the medium of the text, but has a lot to do with the organization of the text. This is probably the most important observation type that you can make when you read the Bible. So this is, as as you had earlier on the slide. Today is Digging More Deeply, Making and Organizing Advanced Observations, Part 3. We will have one more lesson on observation types next week, Part 4, and then I think we'll have an adequate foundation to move on. With that, let's pray, and then I'll tell you about today's observation type. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you so much for this people, and Lord, I think of what Amy shared. Lord, even in the Old Testament, you were sovereign and calling out a people for yourself. And it wasn't anything that they did, Lord, that, um, that merited that calling. You were just being gracious. You were just being merciful. Thank you, Lord, for calling out a people in this church. Thank you for these people, Lord. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling us out. And, Lord, I pray that you would enable us through this Sunday School series and through the Bible reading and through the teaching of the Word to to fulfill the purpose of that calling, as I think about the New Testament passage that says we are called uh, for good works, that we would be a witness of you in the world. So, God, I pray that you would enable us to see more of the scriptures and that it would be something that changes our hearts and changes the way we act and that it would allow us to enjoy you more. Give me the ability to speak, Lord, and to explain, and I pray this be a profitable time. pray this in your name. Amen. Okay. So what is the observation type I want to talk about today? It is the most important. It is context. When you read the Bible, you definitely need to take time to observe context. Now, what is context? What is context? It's a word that people throw around a lot. 
Yeah, Rob. It is, it is a somewhat broad term itself, but yeah, something like background or setting, especially in its historical sense or a cultural sense. We see context in all parts of life. You see a picture here that illustrates a certain type of context. When it comes to the Bible, we're talking particularly about a historical or cultural context. What is the background of the culture? What's the background of the events? What's the situation at the time that something is happening or in the writing? And we're also looking at literary context. That is, what actually appears around a text, not just the events in the chronology of history, but what words or what paragraphs appear near the one that you're looking at, either before or after. And we want to keep in mind when we read the Bible both historical and literary context. Is context important? Absolutely. Monumentally important. Consider this first statement I have up there. It came back to bite him later. What does that mean? You might know the definition of the individual words, but what does that mean? Or what could that mean? Yeah, Craig. Okay. Yes. Someone made a decision that may have had an unintended consequence later. Could it mean something else? What else could it mean? That's right. They could literally be, there could be some literal biting going on here. But we don't even know what kind of thing it is or who the person is. What is the it? Is it a mosquito? Is it a mad dog? Is it a little brother? Or is it a him? Or the, the him, is that a CEO? Is it um, a boy? Is it a family pet? We have no idea. And there's no way to even come to an answer to those questions unless we look at the context, unless we have some sort of background, some sort of situation in which this statement appears. We can't understand this statement without context. But it's not just that we can't understand some things without context. Sometimes people purposefully take words out of context. Now, why would they do that? Why would they want to change the meaning? That's right. Maybe they want to sidestep the original meaning, and they'd rather it meant something else. Very good. What were you going to say, Steve? Very good. There's usually some sort of agenda that the person wants to promote. And so he'll take something out of context because it's useful for his agenda. Now, where do we often see this happening? Words being taken out of context on purpose. Yeah, politics is the one that immediately comes to mind, but it happens everywhere. You read newspaper articles, certainly, in, and talks about the Bible and religion, but certainly politics is one instance, and especially political ads. You see this this quote I have up here, this actually comes from a comedian skit. Brian Regan remarked about a real-life negative campaign ad that read the following, he voted to taser seven-year-olds. I mean, on the face, that sounds horrible. What kind of barbarian would vote to have seven-year-olds tasered? But you just actually catch up with a politician, and he has his explanation. He says, what? I meant worst-case scenario. If a kid has a gun, you don't want to just shoot him. You want to be able to get it away from him without doing too much harm. So we have a totally different understanding with a little bit of context. Sometimes people take things out of context on purpose, but sometimes they don't even know that they're taking things out of context. 
and we don't even know that a statement that we hear or that we repeat is actually out of context. I have a, a, one more quote on here. It's probably one you've heard before. I'll give you the, a little bit fuller version. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. How many of you have heard that before? It's a very, very famous set of words. And maybe you heard it as part of a graduation speech or a conversation. Someone says, I'm taking the road less traveled. By itself, what does this statement sound like it's promoting? Yeah, Steve. What do you mean by that? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Okay, touche. <laughs> well, the way people understand this statement, do they mean being unique, being individual, as being a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, you want to be a pioneer, be a trailblazer, take the road less traveled, be your own man or woman. That's the way people often view this statement. It feels empowering, inspirational, but is it accurate? Does this interpretation actually capture the author's original intention? Where does the statement come from? Does anybody know? Not a, not a book, actually. And it is Robert Frost. Poem, yes. A poem by Robert Frost called The Road Not Taken. And I'm going to exit my PowerPoint for just a second because I want to show you the whole poem. It's only four stanzas, and this line appears in the last stanza. I want you to observe the context a little bit and see if that informs our understanding a little bit more. Let me just go grab it. I'll read the poem to you as well. Okay, can everybody see that? All right. All right, The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other. That's just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay, and leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, Yet, knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. All right, so you see the words that we quote in the last stanza, but look at the rest of the poem. Do you notice something? Or what do you notice? Yeah, he's trying to reason through his choice, right? He has these two paths, and he's trying to figure out why he should take one or the other. What else do you notice? Yeah. Yes, that is a crucial, crucial observation. Notice, he actually says this more than once. He said, I want to travel both in the first stanza. Sorry I could not travel both. It's not like, oh, that one looks bad. Everyone goes that way. I don't want to go that way. And he says, I'd like to go both, but I can't. Then in the second stanza, he says, I took one. It was just as fair as the other. Perhaps it had a better claim because it looked like had, no one had been on it recently. But then he takes a step back, and he says, as for that, as for that thought I just expressed, 
the passing there, that is the walking of people who came by, really had warned them about the same. And in the third stanza, both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. They both had the same amount of leaves on them. They both were untrodden. Suddenly, that gives a totally different interpretation of those lines, right? Those lines at the very end. Could, this, could these words be about going on your own path, not taking the path that everybody else takes? I would argue, no. The context doesn't allow that, because the paths are the same, or they're both equally untraveled. So you might say, well, then, why does he say he took the one less traveled in the last stanza? Did he make a mistake? Is he contradicting himself? Well, certainly, it's not a mistake. He, as a writer, had plenty of chances to revise his poem before it was published and after it was published. So why does he include a clear contradiction of showing us that the paths are the same and then saying that later he would say he took the path less traveled? I think he's actually saying something quite profound about decisions and the way that we view them later. It's not what appears at first without context about merely being a pioneer. So this, all to illustrate how important context is for us. And the same errors that people make with various texts happen with the Bible. They, don't, they aren't able to understand something without context, or people purposefully take things out of context, or sometimes they take things out of context by accident. And we've heard people do this with the Bible. Perhaps you've heard or seen the following. Come to our prayer meeting. Because God says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. That's from Matthew 18, 20. Sounds good. But if you look at the context, you find out that that chapter doesn't have to do with prayer. It actually has to do with confronting sin. Or you might hear someone say, how dare you say that someone is wrong? Jesus says in the Bible, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Luke 6, 37. But they neglect to consider that in other parts of Luke, Jesus and John the Baptist directly point out sin in others and call for repentance. Or, someone might say, all people eventually will end up in heaven. God says he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2.4, and that he is, quote, the Savior of all men, also from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. But those who say that neglect the context of the rest of the Bible that says, or here's one example, John 3:36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, for the wrath of God abides on him. Or, if you want to be an Olympic athlete, Jesus will enable you to do it because Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4:13. But if we look at the context, we find out that that passage is about contentment. Paul says that he, as a prisoner, has learned to be content in every situation, with prosperity or with lack. And I had to include this one just because it cracked me up a little bit. But <clears throat> there's a DVD called Herman Who, which is a, a great presentation about hermeneutics, like what we're doing here in this class. And a real preacher said something like the following. I couldn't get the exact words, but I'll paraphrase. When someone tries to bring up the past and tell you all the wrong you did, as a Christian, just say, so? Or if someone tells you that there's no way for you to accomplish something that you need to do, as a Christian, just say, so? Because the Bible says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. <laughs> Psalm 107, too. <clears throat> ah. So, 
probably the vast majority, I mean, sometimes it's funny, but it's also really sad. The vast majority of all misinterpretation and heresy, I would argue, that happens with the Bible comes from people not observing the context. Sometimes it's willful, sometimes it's just laziness, or sometimes it's just ignorance. We want to pay attention to the details that surround a text, the context of a certain section when we read. And we want to pay attention in four different areas. These can all happen at the same time. It's not necessarily like you have to do them in a certain order. But we want to pay attention to the immediate context. That is, what are the words that come directly before and after a certain verse or a certain section of Scripture? You want to pay attention to that. You also want to pay attention to the book context. What in the rest of the book of the Bible that you're reading, let's say you're reading in James, you read one statement. Are there any other statements in the book of James that will inform the statement that you're looking at in that one particular section? Books were written as units by their, by their respective authors. So the author knows or he has in mind that whoever reads one section of his book will be reading the other section. So that's going to help you in interpreting the different sections of that book. We also want to consider the whole context of the Bible itself. The Bible is not just a, a set of random books, but they are all directly inspired by God, so they all need to fit together. I think Brian mentioned last week, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. So you want to consider the rest of the Bible when you're looking at a certain section, because Jesus said Scripture cannot be broken. We want to see how it fits. And then one-fourth area, and this is, goes back to what Rob was saying earlier, we want to consider the historical context. What is the historical setting? What's the cultural situation um, for a verse or a passage? Now, the Bible gives us a lot of this historical information, but sometimes we can even use some outside resources to fill these things in. So we want to observe context, and we want to observe these four areas, the immediate, the book, the Bible, and the historical. Let's practice. As I, as I like to do, and I think it's helpful for uh, all of us, when we're learning about these observation types, let's take a look at a passage. Open your Bibles and turn to another verse that's very often taken out of context, Jeremiah 29.11. I'll read the statement, and then we'll take a look at the context. Side note, ideally, when you're reading the Bible, you will not jump into the middle of a book like we're doing right now. It's much easier to notice the context if you actually start at the beginning of a book of the Bible and then work your way forward. You don't necessarily have to start at the beginning of the Bible, but please start at the beginning of a book. While it may feel spiritual to let the Holy Spirit guide you to a certain verse or chapter, remember that the Holy Spirit works through the Word, and the Word was written rationally to be understood in context. So, if you want to get the most benefit out of reading the Bible, read it in context. That's the way the Spirit works. So start at the beginning of the book and work your way forward. However, sometimes you want to check up a certain verse or you want to look up a certain something that appears in the middle of the book, and so you're going to do something like what we're doing right now. That's okay. You just have to be extra careful with the context. All right, Jeremiah 29.11. Well, I'm going to be looking at the New American Standard Version. Here's what the verse says. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. All right, this is a comforting verse, right? God is not out to hurt me. He says that he only has good plans for me, plans that are going to help me. He's going to give me hope. He's going to provide for my future. He's not going to destroy me. He's not going to 
harm me. That's the way this verse is often understood. <clears throat> but let's look at the context. And first, let's look at the verses that precede. I'm going to read starting from the beginning of the chapter to verse 11. And I want you to pay attention and then tell me what you notice. So, starting in verse 1. Now these are the words of the letter which Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exile, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. This letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there, and do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Okay, a lot of information there. What's something that you notice in those first 11 verses? Yeah, you landed. Oh, go ahead, Bill. Yes, it's written directly to the people of Israel, and actually we can be even be more specific. Not just the people of Israel, but who in particular? The, that's right, the exiles in Babylon. This message was specifically for them. The exiles in Babylon. Good. What else? What were you going to say, Yolanda? Very good. He says, I, if we bring this back to verse 11, I have a plan. And there is going to be some good. You will be brought back into your land, but after 70 years. Very good. What else? What else do you notice? Yeah, Steve. Yeah, essentially God, his message for the, the people in exile, one of his main things he says is settle down. You know, start settling into your communities. Get married. Let your kids get married. Put down roots. Now why, let's do a little bit of inferring here, why might God give this particular message? Why would he need to say that? Yeah. 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 
Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good inference. Now, we'll, we'll look for verification, but if God has to say, settle down, then naturally we would expect that that means that people were not wanting to settle down. And why would they not want to do that? Well, God, as you mentioned, another observation, he says, you've got some false prophets among you who are saying things to you that I didn't tell them to say. And, we, and he doesn't tell us directly what those false prophets are saying, but I think it's a good inference that Alan's making here. They're saying that, oh, the exile's not going to be that long. We'll soon be brought back into the land. How could we, or what might we want, what could we try to do to see if this is really what the prophets were saying? What could we look at? I heard a couple of things. Chapter before, what was someone, someone else said? Other scriptures? Yes, let's look for some more context. In fact, if you do go back just one chapter, you'll see exactly this is the case. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 28. We have Hananiah, who is a false prophet. Now, he's in Jerusalem. He's not in exile, but I think there's a reason why his prophecy appears next to chapter 29. Look at verse 1 of chapter 28. Now, in the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year, in the fifth month, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet, who was from Gibeon, spoke to me, that's Jeremiah, in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests, and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'm going to bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I'm also going to bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles of Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. This would be something that people would be really glad to hear, right? Oh, yeah, we got taken out of Israel. We're in exile in Babylon, but we're going back. No need to settle down. We're gonna, we might as well just keep our bags packed because we'll go back any day now. But God gives them a specific message here in Jeremiah. He says, you exiles, I have a plan for you. But it's not what the false prophets are saying. They're giving you hope, but that's not a real hope. I'm going to bring you back after 70 years. Really good observations. What else? Yes, Dwayne. Yeah. That's a good observation. I didn't, even, I didn't even think of that. Yeah, because of the seven years, many people that he's actually talking to at that moment would never come back into Jerusalem. That's a good observation. One other observation? Something else you notice? Well, like many of the passages of Scripture that we've looked at as practice, there are so many different things that we could take a look at. One of the statements that you may have noticed has to do with time. It tells us when exactly this letter is being sent out. And it says, um, let me go back, verse 2 in chapter 29, this was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. And also mentions that this letter was sent during the reign of King Zedekiah. Okay, so he was giving some context to his uh, original readers as to when this is taking place, but what does that mean to us? Who's Jeconiah? Who's Zedekiah? Where does that occur in the history of Israel? Where could we find out 
about the, the historical situation of these kings. Kings, yes, we can go to the book of kings. In fact, you can go to the book of 2 Kings, and we get the situation. 2 Kings 24 describes exactly the background of what we see here. I won't make you turn there. I'll just paraphrase it, summarize it. Babylon, um, well, let me back up one second. Remember, Israel was split into two kingdoms, Judah and the northern kingdom that was Israel. This is after Solomon's reign. Well, Israel was, always had wicked kings, and they became so wicked that God removed them into exile by Assyria. Assyria conquered them and took them into exile. But Judah lived on, and they had some good kings and some bad kings. And um, eventually they had a king that was so bad, whose name was Manasseh, that God said, I'm going to remove Judah too. Babylon is going to be the nation that's going to come and remove them. And Babylon did come up against um, Jerusalem, and that was in the, re the reign of Jehoiakim, I believe. And when, when he came up to attack, Jehoiakim just surrendered. He's like, no, I'll be your servant. And he served him for a couple of years, but then he rebelled. And his son, Jehoiachin, also called Jeconiah, became king. So Nebuchadnezzar's not going to let this rebellion get away. He comes up and attacks Judah, and he sieges Jerusalem, and Jeconiah surrenders. He comes out to Nebuchadnezzar and says, you can take my family, you can take me, we give up. And so he does. In a kind of tame way, he punishes Jerusalem, but it's not that bad. He takes the most important people, the craftsmen, the leaders, the royal family, and he takes them back to Babylon. I think 2 Kings 24 says it's about 10,000 people. But he doesn't destroy the city. There are no executions or anything. It's actually pretty gracious. Some of the people were left in Israel. And Zedekiah became the new king. He was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. He was appointed there. So you got some in exile, but you have some also still in Judah. And Judah is uh, a nation that serves uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. Later on, Babylon would invade again. And it would have a very different result. But... With 2 Kings, that background of 2 Kings, we have a little bit better idea of the historical situation. So already you can see, with these different observations, that statement, Jeremiah 29, 11, has a, has a different meaning. Not completely different, but when we understand I, that when God says, I know the plans I have for you, that they're for good, he was talking to a specific group, and those plans included exile. Painful, sad Grievous-causing or grief-causing exile, he says. I, I'm putting you in exile for seven years, but I will bring you back. By the way, why were they taken into exile? Why did why did God decide to take them to exile? He even says explicitly in verse four, "I have sent you into exile." Why? Why? Why would you do that, God? I thought you had only good plans. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right, yeah. There are so many different things that Judah was doing that were wicked before God. Yeah, Manasseh was a bad king, and God said, I'm going to judge the, the nation just for him. But it wasn't just Manasseh. It was all the people under him. And his son was evil, and Jehoiakim was evil, and Jehoiachin was evil. They all did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they led the people into evil, and they didn't do anything to stop the evil of the people. God got rid of them, put them in exile for the same reason he got rid of the, the kingdom of Israel. They were not being obedient. And so that gives us a little bit of um, extra understanding of this verse. God's giving a promise to people that were not being obedient to him. He says, I'm going to put you in exile. 
and I will bring you back after 70 years. And now that's just the verses that come before. Let's take a look at the verses that come after, because they're also going to show us some, um, we're also going to be able to observe some pretty amazing things in the context. I'll read verse 10, and I'll go to verse 20. Follow along with me. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I have sent you into exile. Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. For thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your brothers who did not go with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending upon them the sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like split open figs that cannot be eaten due to rottenness. I will pursue them with the sword, with famine and with pestilence, and I will make them a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse and a horror and a hissing and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them, because they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord which I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets. But you did not listen, declares the Lord. You, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles, whom I have sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. <clears throat> what do you notice from these um, verses that come afterwards? That's right. There's a big difference here, right? And it's important that we notice that this was to a specific group, right? This was to the group in exile, these, the Israelites in exile, because he says something about the Israelites that are not in exile. And it's the opposite of Jeremiah 29, 11. It's calamity. It's not good. It's not, it's not hope in future. It's total destruction. He says, I'll make them like rotten figs. I'll pursue them with famine and sword and pestilence. Ooh. Why does he do that to them? He actually gives a reason. They did not listen. Yeah, yeah. So you said a lot of good things there, but they were particularly sent in exile because they did not listen. And hearing what happens to them, it definitely would make you think twice about wanting to go back to Jerusalem when you, when you hear what's going to happen to them. Something, Roy. Mm 
Mm. Yeah, the context of the rest of the Old Testament, we, we do indeed see that theme, Roy. You follow me, I'll bless you. You turn away from me, I'll curse you. And that's one of the things that even Proverbs says again and again. And we see that these people in Israel definitely, or in Jerusalem, and in the, that are not in exile, they're definitely going to get God's curse. And he says specifically because you did not listen. And there are other things there, though. What else do you notice? Yeah, I think you're going a little bit more into the interpretation step here, but it's warranted. We're seeing a, a principle here about true and false prophets, right? And even true and false hope. Sometimes the false hope looks so attractive because it means no pain, right? Or very little pain. What else, though? What else do you notice? I think, again, you're saying some really valuable things, Alan. God emphasizes, he says, I sent prophets to you again and again. I was trying to call you back. I was looking to be merciful to you, but you wouldn't want it. You didn't have it. And even, even after he's giving this promise and this warning here, you had some that would not submit, and the consequences were going to be terrible. Though, there's something interesting that you said that I, I do want to clarify in terms of those in exile submitting to God versus those not in exile submitting to God. What is the difference? No, let me say it like this. Were the people in exile more righteous than the people who are not taken into exile? Steve. Yeah. We might want to say, well, because they were righteous. Because they listened to God. They were the good ones and a whole nation of bad ones. But, um, as we mentioned, the whole kingdom... Judah was, was evil. I'm sure there are righteous ones in there, like Jeremiah and Daniel. Daniel was taken into exile. But the nation as a whole was evil. And then notice what verse 12 says. Right after he says, I know the plans I have for you. I'll bring you back after 70 years. What will you do? Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. You will seek me. You will find me. You will, you will search me with your whole heart, and I will be found by you. Implication? They're not doing that now. That hasn't been their practice. They haven't been seeking the Lord. He says, you will, though. You will, as a group, you will, as a whole, come back to me. You will repent. You will, you will turn to me. And then notice that also, that statement at the very end of verse 19. God is saying why he's bringing destruction on those who are not in exile. He says, um, Because they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, which I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets. And then you have this. But you did not listen, declares the Lord. Or some translations say, and you did not listen either. Remember, the you, that pronoun you, has to be addressing the group that he was addressing at the beginning. Which is whom? I'm sorry. I need... Yeah, the people in exile. It says, you didn't listen either. So I think, as we bring together these details, we might say that the exiles were 
as a whole know better than the people who were in Jerusalem. But God says, I have a good plan for you. You will repent. I'll bring you back after 70 years. This, um, this brings to mind actually what Amy was saying earlier about the way, the way that God is merciful in his sovereignty. Even repentance is something that God gives, right? Think about those different New Testament passages. I, I wrote a number of them down. I'll just say them to you briefly. <clears throat> see if I can find them. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. Paul is writing to Timothy about what a true Christian leader should be, and he says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Acts 11, verse 18. When the Gentiles in Cornelius' house received the Holy Spirit and were saved, there was a, a hubbub in Jerusalem about, hey, you went and they ate with uncircumcised people. Peter explained the whole thing, and then people said this after they heard it all. Uh, Acts eleven eighteen says, When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. So all these things... Looking at the context, not just in the immediate context and not just the other chapters of Jeremiah, but also in the rest of Scripture, we see that Jeremiah 29.11 has is, got a lot more to it. Yeah, God does have some good plans, and sometimes they're painful. Sometimes um, there's going to even be a temptation to look for a false hope rather than his hope. But he has good plans for those that he decided to be merciful to, not those who deserved his mercy. Because all the exiles and the non-exiles were unfaithful, but to one, he was going to grant repentance. And to one, he was going to um, allow them to go their own way. And those who would grant repentance, he brings them back to prosperity. And those he didn't grant, it's horrifying. 2 Kings 25 says what happens to the non-exiles. Zedekiah, probably listening to the false prophets, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And he came back, he sent his armies back, and they siege Jerusalem again. And the famine in the city was so bad. Remember, he prophesied famine and pestilence. The famine in the city was so bad that in the last desperate attempt, Zedekiah and his army broke a hole in the, in the wall and fled for their lives. But they were, uh, the Nebuchadnezzar's army caught up to them, captured them, and then Nebuchadnezzar took Zedekiah, brought him to Babylon, took his sons and slaughtered them before his eyes. I think he blinded them too. Many in Jerusalem... He took many of the people, especially the, the leaders and the officials, and he just slaughtered them, just executed them all. He left only a very small amount of people there in Jerusalem, took the rest in exile. He burned the whole city. He burned the temple. He burned the king's palace. He broke down the wall. It was just ruin and destruction. He said, that's, that's, the, that's the punishment for you going your own way and not repenting. There's such a contrast. Anyways, we could, we could talk more about this first, but I'm going to move on. All this to show, context. Oh, man, context is so important. Howard Hendricks, I don't know if he came up with this quote himself, but he certainly uses it. He says, context is king. Context is king. When you're interpreting a, a section of scripture or you're looking to understand it, remember that context is king. It's one of the most important things that you can pay attention to. Always look. What is around a passage? How does that inform the meaning? Not just immediately, but in the rest of that book, in the rest of the Bible, 
and in anything that gives us some more historical or cultural background. One thing I want to say before we close today. One thing that you should be careful about when looking for context, because there's something in your Bible that is not inspired. It is not actually God-breathed, but it's in our Bibles. What is in, what is in our Bible that, that is like that? Steve. That's right. Chapters, verse divisions, even sometimes the different sections that tell you what a section is about, that, that this particular translation will put in there, they're not inspired. They're helpful. Um, I'm certainly... It would have been more difficult back in the, in the time of the Bible to refer to a specific text because they didn't have chapters and verses back then. They couldn't say, well, in Isaiah 24, it says this. They, they just said, well, in Isaiah, this helps us. But it can also hurt us, too, when it comes to context because we might say, oh, this is where this section ends. Or this is not related to the rest, or it's not as related. Now, be careful. They are there to help, but they're not inspired. Let me give you one example of this. Go to Revelation 14.1, and this will be quick. Be careful about these artificial divisions because they can sometimes cause you not to see the context or the connections between certain sections of Scripture. Revelation 14.1. So John is seeing these various visions, these prophecies about what will take place in the last days. And this is what he says at the beginning of chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Now, we can say a lot of different things about the context, but I just want to point you to one particular facet. Go back to chapter 13. Take a look at the last six or so verses and tell me if you notice anything similar between the end of Revelation 13 and the beginning of Revelation 14. What do you notice? Anybody see a similarity? Steve, you're nodding your head. Okay, can you explain that a little bit more? What is the name and number in Revelation 13? good, right? And you say, as opposed to, because I think that's really appropriate. We see a contrast, right? Between Revelation 13 and 14, we have two groups of people who both have marks on them. And one is the mark of the beast, which is either the number of the beast or his name. And it's either on their hand or it's on their forehead. And in the very next chapter, the beginning of that chapter, we see another mark. And it's a name as well. But it's not the beast's name. Um, it says, it is the name of the lamb and the name of his father. And it also appears on their foreheads. 
It's almost like he wants to juxtapose this together. He wants us to see, here are those that follow the beast, and they've got the mark, and here are those who follow the lamb, and they've got a mark. You might not appreciate that if we say, oh, Revelation 13, done my Bible reading for today, and you don't pay attention to what comes right afterwards. Or you start Revelation 14, and you don't pay attention to what came right before. So just be aware of that. Okay, so as you return to your Bible reading this week, remember king context. Read sequentially through a book. That will help you the most when it comes to noticing the context. And as you work to understand or meditate on a specific verse or section, make sure you consider what is around it, both immediately and in the rest of the Bible, to make sure you get the fullest background, the fullest understanding that you can of that particular verse or section. Okay, next week, Lord willing, we will finish observation types, part four of this digging more deeply. And these observation types will be about some special connections between different sections of Scripture, both right next to each other and also those that are far apart. Hope to see you back next week. Or, Dwayne, you want to say something? Yeah, definitely links into expository preaching and why we do that here. Okay, well, let's pray. <clears throat> Holy Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you just for this fundamental concept of context that you make it, you make your word understandable because you wrote it in sequence and we can use what appears around the text to understand it. I pray, Lord, that you would assist me and that you would assist the, peop assist the people here, Lord, to be able to understand and be able to apply in their own Bible reading this concept of observing context as, long, uh, as well as the other things that we've looked at. I pray, Lord, that you would make their Bible study so rich, and, Lord, that you would also make this time, uh, the rest of service, rich. Lord, as we sing and as we hear the word preached, Lord, also bless the food and the fellowship that we have. For your own name's sake, thank you for being merciful to us, God, and not allowing us, by your grace, Lord, to, to proceed on the way of ruin like those who are not called in exile. Lord, help us to trust you. Pray this in your name. Amen.